Have you ever heard or said these words after somebody spoke? Did he really say that? Or what on earth did they mean by that? Or maybe you said this to yourself on the ride home from somewhere or a few minutes after it popped out of your mouth. I really wish I hadn't said that. Words can get us and others into a lot of trouble. On the other hand, words can be a tremendous work of grace in people's lives uh, to help people and to worship God. As we move into James chapter 3 and 4, James explores the area of wisdom and obedience, especially in the areas of speech. James refers to our speech as the tongue, the tongue, and to illustrate how a little thing can do much harm or it can do much good. And so the title of our message is tonight, The Power of Our Words, The Power of Our Words. In particular, James is calling out, he's writing a letter to churches, and he's calling out people in the church with a particular focus at the beginning of chapter 3 on teachers and leaders. Although the teachers and leaders in most church are a smaller group, like the tongue, their potential to poison the church and the people in the church is absolutely incredible and dangerous. So much so, James will raise the following question. Are these types of people who let their tongues run wild, are they controlled by the will of God or are they controlled by the will of hell? That may, this may seem odd to you, but I've talked to a lot of people in the church over the years and, and they've told me that throughout their life, They've actually seen darkness in the eyes of pastors and priests. They're like, I, I looked at them and the way they, they looked at you. While others adored such people, these extroverted and skilled manipulators are absolutely dangerous. I remember when my little sister got married and the priest that married her and my brother-in-law we were like, oh, what a cool guy, what a cool guy. And he is now serving a long sentence in jail for abusing boys. Seemed cool, but he wasn't. Again, he was extroverted. He was a skilled manipulator. He was a danger to those around him. But James is not going to limit it to just leaders and teachers and pastors and priests and rabbis or whatever, and nor should we. James speaks to all of us. If we remember or turn back a page to James 1.26, he said, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, or the idea of control his tongue, or, or keep a tight rein on your tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious religion is useless. So I'm going to be honest with you on the front end. Chapter 3 is tough. I am, I'm looking forward to tonight. I'm really looking forward to next week. But it's tough. But it's also life-changing if you let it. 
So let's jump in. James 3.1, one of the scariest verses in the, in the Bible for a pastor. And it should be. Not much gives me nightmares. I sleep like a rock every night. But this is the kind of verse that gives me nightmares. He says, verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Another version says, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. J.B. Phillips says, teachers will be judged by a much higher standard. Now, so apparently in the congregations that James is writing to, we saw that back in chapter 1, a number of people desired uh, to be teachers, desired maybe to go into the ministry, to be pastors. Now, while I don't think that James' ultimate purpose is to discourage them, he is saying this to them. If you're thinking that, be very, very careful. It seems that James realizes that that many unqualified people who lack the spiritual gifting for being teachers of God's word and the ability to give understanding to God's word and even understanding it themselves, we'll talk about that in a second, desire to be teachers. Now, I became a follower of Jesus in the late 1980s when there was just a lot of people were coming to Christ at that time. And I went to a rather large church in New York City. And it seemed like every young man was talking about becoming a pastor. So because I'm a contrarian sometimes by nature, that became the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to become a pastor at all. And then I was in Sunday school classes with pastors and elders and teachers and leaders. And they all kept telling me, what? You're going to be a pastor someday. And I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. Because it seemed like that's what guys wanted to do. Now, why would that be? Well, I think many people were well-intentioned. But I think others sought the prestige and notoriety that they thought would come with being a pastor, and that is wrong. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Being someone who teaches the Word of God, it's a lot easier for me to read this, to study this, to meditate on this than it is to teach this because I know that this verse, while it's not talking about Judgment, but I'm not going to say what I'm going to say is not talking about judgment per se, but I know a lot of people felt called to the ministry, but somehow that dream has not come true for them, or others didn't see that calling, or they didn't pass the test of 1 Timothy chapter 3, or maybe they did pass the test and then their head got so big, or they didn't think that, or they thought they could do whatever they wanted, and now they're no longer in the ministry. But I can tell you this, the call to the ministry is a spirit-empowered calling. It is not for everyone. If you can do something else, please do it. (laughs) You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon told his students, if you could do anything else, if you can't do anything else, you know, then, then you can be a pastor. It doesn't mean you have no ability to do anything else. He's like, if do something else if you can. You know, sometimes people say to me, 
they'll hear my story of how I was a Christian and then didn't sat in the congregation for a long time because I didn't want to be a pastor. And that gnawing feeling was at me the entire time. And then I had a good business and people say, let me understand this. You had a, a really good business. I said, yeah, it was really, really good. And it was really growing. Yeah, it was really, really growing. We, were, we, we had to expand it. We couldn't keep up with everything. And they said, and then you decided to become a pastor. And I said, sort of. I think really God decided that I was going to be a pastor. So I sort of followed his leading after not following it for a while. And they'll say to me, could you explain that to me? To which my answer is this, and I don't mean to sound like a smart aleck, but I usually will say, to be honest with you, if I have to explain it to you, I don't know I can help you understand it. Because either you know what that's like, or you don't. It's just one of those things. Over the years, I've seen a lot of pastors leave the ministry. Or I've seen a real lot also admit that they don't like being teachers of the Word of God. Now, it's usually not that they don't want to tell people about Jesus. It's usually not that they don't like getting up and, and sharing wisdom from the Word of God, but it's because they grow tired and they grow weary of the hard work of study. Every once in a while, some pastor will say to me, how are you doing with the study grind? And I'll say to them, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't understand what you mean by the study, of gra uh, the, the, the study grind. You see, I find the task of exploring and digging deep into a text. And I'm teaching James. This is the third time I've taught James. I'm not using any of my previous material. I want to come at it fresh. But I find the task of learning the text or relearning the text or, be, or of trying to find things that I never saw before, I find that completely uh, exciting. But the work of learning how to communicate it to people, that can be very tedious. It can be very, very tedious. And the whole thing is very, very time-consuming. And while, while one may think it's a uh, privilege to teach the Word of God, it is, I view it much more as a responsibility. I mean, you're responsible to deliver the Word of God with, to the best of your ability with accuracy, not with what you want it to mean or you want to say. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes to young pastor Timothy. He says, be diligent. Another version says, study to present yourself approved to God. A talker? No, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Another version says, rightly handling the word of truth. Another version says, correctly teaching the word of truth. Now, the first century church had large needs for teachers. And the church today has large need for teachers. That's one reason why a lot of guys are saying that we're doing, you know, all these campuses. Some, some guys have 20, 30 campuses. 
and they're just saying that God in this day and age seems to not be raising up teachers like he was before. I can't comment on that either way, but, but the church does need teachers, not speakers, not talkers, not peacocks walking around the stage telling you about themselves the entire sermon. It needs teachers, people with the gift of study. Yeah not, yeah, not just the gift of talking, not just the gift of communicating, but the gift of study, the gift of spiritual understanding, and the gift of communication. I mean, it doesn't do, I know a lot of people who know a lot. You sit with them across from the diner, and you're like, whoa, this guy knows a lot, but yet you put them up in front of a crowd or in front of a camera, and it's not as easy for them. So, so they might not be more pulpit-type teachers, I will encourage them, listen, I think you fulfill the biggest need we have in the body of Christ today. A man who can sit across from another man in a diner, a woman from another woman in a diner, and disciple them and teach people the Word of God. This is not just being a person who makes people feel good about themselves or the opposite, uh, you know, making them just feel so guilty, beating them up with the biblical text or trying to promote an agenda, I call that cheap preaching. If you just want to make people feel good, if you just want to make people feel guilty, if you just want to promote your agenda, that's cheap, that's easy, that doesn't require study, that doesn't require work, that is not rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, the church needs people who can study a text and bring the word of God to bear upon the people of God to the glory of God. Now, now it's easy to miss this. Without careful study, it's a lot easier to get a Bible passage wrong than it is to get one right. Sometimes I'll listen, and, I, and whenever I listen to someone else teach, I, I try to just listen as a child of God. I don't try to listen with a critical spirit or why do you say this or why do you say that or that's not right or this is not right. But I notice a lot of times it seems like a lot of pastors are trying to figure out what the text means as they're talking. I'm not saying God can't reveal stuff to you as you're talking, but a lot of times they seem to be trying to figure it out as they're talking. And you can tell a lot of times how they do it is they default to stories. They just start telling you stories that they think seem to fit. But we want to be people who get it right. And that includes if you're a Sunday school teacher, or a children's church teacher, or you're a small group leader, or you've got a Bible study in, that, with a couple of people you meet with, or in your office, or something like that. You want to do your best to get it right. Why? So people repent and believe. So people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this verse concludes with James including himself. Speaking to teachers, he says this, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. This is something I have to tell you that I love, I love, I love about the apostles. They, they, they generally include themselves when they're talking about leadership when they're talking about sin, when they're talking about different thing, ways that we need to grow in our faith, they don't put themselves up on a, on a pedestal. James is talking to the guys who are teachers. He said, listen, guys, listen. 
we who teach, God is going to hold us to a stricter judgment. The Lord is clear. There are consequences for leading people astray. There are consequences for shaving the gospel. We often say around here that we have to be very careful of the gospel without repentance, of just what Jesus will do for you. We, there, there will be consequences for not calling people to live for Jesus or to the glory of God. In Luke 12, Jesus said this, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Now that's not just teaching. That's also in doing your best with God's help in living out the message. You know, over the years, and, and I learned a lot before I was a pastor about being a pastor. And, and I've seen this throughout the years and, and talking with pastors and being surrounded by them at times. And um, I know too many pastors who feel they can say whatever they want. They think that, that just because they're, some guys will be like, well, I'm the Lord's anointed. And I'm like, you know, you don't, you don't, don't tell people you're the Lord's anointed. If they come to you and say you are, fine. But, but you don't proclaim that to be yourself. And so many people who are pastors, they think they can say whatever they want to people. And they're like parents were years ago. You know, do you ever have a parent, if you're much older, who just would think you never apologize to your kids? I'm amazed at the number of pastors who never think they have to apologize. Such ministries, like we saw about favoritism earlier in this letter, should be called into question on earth. Why? Because they will be in heaven. Because they will undergo a stricter judgment. Verse 2, he says, For or because we all stumble in many things. Another version says we all stumble in many ways. So, James, once again, he includes himself. He says, listen, guys, listen. We all, all of us stumble in a few things. No. We all stumble once in a while. No. We all stumble in many things or many ways. He says, if anyone does not stumble in word, meaning if anyone does not stumble or sin in what he says, he is a perfect man. Do we have any perfect men out there? No, I'm not, I'm not getting too much here from the back. Able also to bridle or control the whole body. Remember we talked about that. A bridle is what you put on a horse, the straps and the bit in the mouth and, and the reins that pull the horse back. So now is James in verse 2 still talking to teachers or everybody now? I don't know for sure, but the statement applies to everyone. Now, let's make sure we're very serious about this word stumble. You know, this is, a, this is American Christianity sometimes. We're like, I'm really struggling. Now you're sinning. That's, <laughs> I am always like the Lord's like, Jim, you're not going to talk like that. Please, no, no, no. Or we say, oh, I, I stumbled or something like that. Let's take it seriously. You know, the word stumble actually in the Bible, mean, it can mean to be ruined, to be defeated, to trip or to sin. That doesn't sound very, you know, like, oh, I stumble, bro. It's a very serious word. And all of us know this experience. You, you know this. Something leaves your mouth with little thought 
and you're like, oh, if I could only pull those words back. You know, you, if, you're, if you're married, maybe you say something to your, to your wife or to your kids or, or to your friends, and you're like, you know, as soon as you said it, it's just like, oh, I wish I could have had that back. And sometimes what you're saying is right. It's just the way you say it. You're just like, oh, that is absolutely awful. And you may meet people who say they never sin. Well, this verse certainly crushes that idea, especially with the tongue. We all do it in many ways. Not some of us once in a while. We all do it in many things. Uh, James is teaching us that if you can control the tongue, you can essentially uh, and potentially control anything. In that sense, it's a positive thought that you're not going to control it completely, but you can get a better handle on it. But the reality of the illustration is how helpless we really are because the Bible often shows us that our speech is something that reveals to us what's going on in our heart. How sad it is that people undo so much good, or they can do undo so much good with a tongue that's gone wild. How someone who has done a lot of good can really hurt another person. And as James is writing, he's saying, if your tongue is going wild, do you realize how you can hurt the church? Verse 3 says, Indeed we put bits, and he's going to talk about small things that are able to really control big things. Indeed we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. So, so the bit, if you, I don't know how many horseback riders we have out there. I used to ride. Uh, and most of you know that I grew up across the street from a horse barn. But if you, if you put that bit in the horse's mouth, and then as you're going, you, if you know how to ride, you tug it, and it's almost like, it's almost like a steering wheel. It, it, it turns. You think of you know, some of these guys driving these big tractor trailers on the road with that little steering wheel that just turns that whole uh, truck. He says, look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, so strong winds can actually push that ship forward. That's what you need. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So you, if you look under the, it's actually really interesting to look under a big ship, you see that the thing is just this little tiny rudder, this little tiny flap is really what's controlling where the ship goes. And so here James gives a series of illustrations to show us how strong this little thing we call the tongue really is. He says it's like a bit that you put in a horse's mouth that control and turn and control and turn a, a large horse. Our, our tongues can control, or I think a better word is direct us as well. In the same way, he says a small rudder can can turn or can direct a large ship, even in a fierce wind, even in a strong wind. Now, now, the word fierce or the word strong can also mean hard or violent, rough or cruel. Maybe that's a description of life. Maybe he's saying, listen, that light, when life gets like that, remember that this thing you have 
the tongue can do really good things. It can help with, with, with life in the storm or it can do a lot of harm. It could actually make the storm worse. If that's the case, the rudder or the tongue is, being, is seen as being under control of the captain. You know, people say, oh, I said it, I couldn't help myself. But James seems to be indicating to us that, that the tongue is under the control of the person who's controlling the ship. So if the captain's heart is wrong, remember the captain, our brain, our heart is steering our tongues. If the captain's heart is wrong, if our head is in a bad place, the rudder will malfunction. And once the rudder starts to malfunction, the ship, the ship is what? It is uncontrollable. It is out of control. On the other hand, if the captain's heart and head is in a good place, the rudder, the tongue, sets the ship on a good course. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 33-35, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. That, that doesn't seem nice, does it? Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For, about, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is Jesus saying? The tongue, okay, is, doesn't steer itself. The heart steers the tongue. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure, of, treasure brings forth evil things. So clearly the tongue is influential. It is powerful. But our hearts are what direct our tongues. Our thoughts are what direct our tongues and then in turn also direct our actions. And if you know people with an uncontrollable tongue, they often lack discipline and direction in other areas of their life. And when things start to go wrong, they just completely become undone. They completely fall apart. They completely start doing stuff that they really don't want to do. And here's one thing I've noticed after all these years in, in church world. In, in a church, in church life, an uncontrolled tongue in one person often discourages other people from wanting to serve the kingdom of God. They say stuff and they make people feel like, well, maybe God's kingdom doesn't need me instead of that guy's a jerk. <laughs> they're, they're thinking maybe, maybe God doesn't need me. Maybe God doesn't want me in the kingdom. Even, even worse, that the careless words of another follower of Jesus, especially a leader, often make some people feel inferior in the kingdom of God. You don't get that impression from the apostles, do you? You don't get the impression that they think that they're better than everybody else. You do sometimes get the impression, well, we're out a little bit ahead of you because we, we were with Jesus and oh, it was a tough learning process. And, and they, Jesus was not always super easy on them. But the apostles don't want to make us feel inferior 
Uh, Peter David said this, it, it, it is not the tongue that steers the ship, but the proper helmsman, helmsman is often not in control. He's like, the, your, your tongue is the result of you just not being in control. On the other hand, the controlled tongue, this is an amazing thing about it. A spirit-controlled tongue can move the hearts of men and women, can influence them for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's one of the wonderful joys of being a pastor is when you, you work hard at, at trying to really get the word of God right and you actually get to see sometimes the people changing in their seats. You can actually see it. Other times you, you hear testimonies of, oh, that person has really changed and they're, and they're so different than they were before. Wonderful things can happen. So the, so the tongue can do such good. The tongue can change more lives than we ever dreamed possible. But it's got to be used in the right way. Verse 5, he says, even so, some verses say likewise. And, and so he, he then begins to unpack it more for us. The tongue is a little member. Another version says it's a small part of the body and boasts great things. Now, typically boasting is negative, but it's showing us that the tongue has great influence. She says, see how a great forest, a little fire kindles. A little fire, right? Could light up a whole forest ablaze. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It, is a, it, can, it can be a world of sin. It can be a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles. In other words, it pollutes or it stains or it corrupts the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, sets on fire your whole course of your life if you don't somehow get a grip on this. And it is set on fire by hell. The beginning of verse 5, James says the, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. And of course, tongue means speech and our words. Generally, the term, as we said, boast is not good in the word of God, except when it says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. James' point is very, very simple. We can either control our tongues or we can let our tongues control us. He's saying that the tongue is more powerful than, than a bit in a horse's mouth. It's more powerful than a rudder on a ship. As we've said, it has the power to destroy or it has the power to build up. And, and years of being in various churches, I cannot overemphasize this enough, how our speech and what we say can divide and destroy or build God's church. It can divide God's church, it can destroy God's church, or it can build God's church. And, this is the scary part, we will all have to answer for that. You say, oh, no, no, just verse 1, just the teachers. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 37, for by your words you will be justified. Some versions say acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. 
The second half of verse 5 and into verse 6, James puts his focus on the reckless and uncontrolled tongue. He says it's like a, it's like a fire. Now, it's very common for people to say in the church, I want to speak in tongues, I want to speak in tongues. You could just picture James going, okay, okay, okay. But first, let's get some sort of control on the one you do have. Many of you know this from your workplace. Many of you know this from school. Many of you know this by marriages you're in or marriages you've seen. The problems or loss that is caused by the tongue. James says in the same way that like one little spark can destroy a whole forest. A tongue can destroy many, many things. This is the very opposite of maturing faith. The Lord wants us to have a Holy Spirit-controlled living and trust in His sovereignty. Even when we want to lash out, to just hold back. In verse 6, James essentially says it's, it's hard to find a sin where the tongue is not involved. And, and, and it's a sign of a corrupted mind. It's, it's like a disease. It's like a virus. It's like a pandemic. Sins of the tongue spread like wildfire. And they're very hard to control. And it's something that, that grows and grows. How often an evil heart just leaks out in words and lies. And those words and lies, you think, well, okay, they're not good for the person saying them, but how often they infect other people. How often they harm others in so many ways. Sadly, and you see this, those of you in the business world, you have experienced this many times and in, in, in churches and in relationships. You see people who are in meetings together and they're agreeing. Oh, yes. Yeah, we should do that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And they, and they get outside and they light a fire under other people to cause division and dissension, saying, well, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Proverbs 16, 27 and 28 says, an ungodly man. Some versions say, a scoundrel. I like that. Another version says, a worthless man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man or a dishonest man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. How often it starts with just a spark, with just a match, with just a campfire, with somebody tossing a cigarette, and it's a fire. And here James says, the same thing can happen with a careless statement, with a thoughtless statement. So then we have a choice. Do we demonstrate character and integrity when we know we've done that by going back and admitting our faults to others? Or going back and admitting our lies to others? 
I remember one time I was at a place where a guy stood up and, and he just admitted that he had just done terrible things to one of the leaders in the church and he had told lies. And it was a powerful, powerful thing. But it, what happens with most people is, uh, for those of you who are older, there's this old Veggie Tales thing for the lie that just kept growing. And, and so if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But um, what happens is when you lie, you've got to remember what you said. And then people have different versions of the story, and they're not saying the same thing, and, and they're, they're, they're lying over and over again. Or they just keep lying or they can't stop whining, or they can't stop criticizing. And they're doing more and more to cover up their sin, and they're becoming more and more defiled and more and more corrupted. In other words, a lying tongue creates more and more evil in us. And again, it can become obsessive, where you just can't get it under control, and it brings no honor to the Lord. Verse 6 ends by pointing the influence of, of hell in all this. And hell is a, is a place of fire, as it's recorded in the Old Testament, feared in the ancient world and should be by us. This is very sobering. James is telling us that an unrestrained, lying tongue is actually an instrument of Satan to tear down churches, to tear down people, to tear down the life that God has for people. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue it is an unruly evil. Now, the, the idea is it, the tongue is so unstable, full of deadly poison. So here, James is not literally talking about every single animal. He's, he's using hyperbole, but he's pointing out that mankind has learned to control a large number of wild animals, but mankind still cannot control himself. Should we give up? That's the question. Should we give up? Then perish the thought. We shouldn't give up at all. We should be striving to move forward in grace. And that's critical to a maturing faith. This is critical to a maturing faith. He says, but no man can tame the tongue. What does that mean? That means that change has to come from the outside into us. We can't do it internally. It has to come from the outside through the power of God. In other words, the only way to change the tongue is that it must be supernatural. It must be miraculous. We must beg God to help us. Listen, here's one of the things. If this kind of stuff, if you're hearing this and you're saying, this is me, this is me. I'm deliberately not using the word you because I want all of us to hear it and say, hear God say, come on, you know this is you. If this is you and it breaks your heart, it's a good sign 
that you are truly a believer, that you are truly a child of God. But if you're sitting there going, this isn't me. This is never me. He's talking about other people. Oh, your heart's in a bad place, loved one. Your heart's in a really bad place. He says, because the tongue is full of deadly poison, it is unstable. The tongue is like a poisonous snake that can strike at any time. And it's not until we see this and admit our failure in this area, we will begin to see some victory. He says, verse 9, with it, with what? With our tongue, with our speech, we bless God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the likeness of God. <laughs> but this verse is a sermon in itself. And let's look at verse 10. We can throw that in too. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so, or it should not be this way. So look at this. With our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or in the likeness of God. Verse 11, does, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Some of your versions say fresh water and salt water. We're supposed to go, no, no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? No. Or a grapevine bear figs? No. Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. James points out the inconsistency of saying you love God, of saying you're a follower of Jesus, and yet you curse men made in God's image. Now, it's important to remember that sin marred the image of God in us, but it didn't destroy it. So every human being has something of the image of God in them. This is why, and you're saying, uh-oh, he's going to get political. I'm not getting political at all. This is why Christians are pro-life. Because we believe from the moment of conception, the image of God is in that woman's stomach. That is the reason why Christians are not pro-euthanasia, that we can just kill someone because they're old and in the way. Not at all. Now, I'm not talking about, it's a, it's a whole different subject. If somebody's on life support or something like that, it's a different subject for a different day. But we hold the value of anyone being having the image of God in them, to some extent, we hold that in very high esteem. And yet, he says, some people, they can, they can say they love God and curse people at the same time. The same is true for sometimes some church people. I mean, some, some, some people say they love Jesus, yet they lack participation or respect from the church that the Scripture says Jesus gave his life for. 
I once heard a pastor years ago say, if you're not part of a local church, you may be going to hell. I think it was Mark Dever. And, and, and oh, the uprising. Oh, the uprising. I thought, I don't know what's so wrong with that statement, to be honest with you. Because Jesus gave his life for the church. And I know a lot of people have been hurt by churches. You know what? People are people. Spurgeon said, the best of men are men at best. Don't give up on Jesus because of church people. Meet with somebody. Call me up. Meet with me. We'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll, 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 we'll talk it out. We'll see, you know what? Maybe that was God was just using it to teach you something and teach them something. And if they didn't learn the lesson, at least maybe you can. Despite someone's self-proclaimed faith, this type of person that James is teaching us is like he said in chapter 1, an unstable, double-minded man. And double-mindedness is actually deceit. It's what makes the tongue so evil. So many people he's telling us, and all of us so often can be double-tongued. You could also even bring this into the political arena. I mean, there's so many people that say they're fighting for religious rights. But these same people do little to actually support the church. And you wonder sometimes, you're like, well, whose rights are you really fighting for? There's so many examples we could have. You see, you're, you, you're around church world long enough, you see people who say they love the Lord. Oh, I just love the Lord. And they leave the church over the pettiest of things because they wanted to be served, not to serve as Jesus did. Jesus said, the, man, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. But people, when they were insulted over the littlest of things, and then they never discuss it with anyone, they just disappear. They disappear from people who care about them. They disappear people who maybe help them. James says in verse 10, what does he say? These, these things ought not to be so. In other words, he's saying there's no reason it should be like this in God's house. Down the world, we get it. And, and in a lot of ways, people are more gracious out in the world. Because a lot of people go, well, i got to take it. You know, the guy said something. They looked at me the wrong way, but I can't go out and find another job tomorrow, so i got to take it. But, oh, I'm not going to come back to that church if they treat me that way. And then you, next thing you know, five years from now, you, you haven't been involved in anything, and you're far from God. We should be a blessing. We should be a blessing to God. We should be a blessing to the people of God. We should be a blessing to a lost and hurting world as we reflect the image of God in us and we respect the image of God in other people. James is talking here in verse 11 and 12, I think, a lot about consistency. He says, uh, you know, another one version, a salt spring can't yield fresh water. If you live around here, um, if you go from where our church is and you go to the motor vehicle department in Randolph, if you notice there's a big field on the left and many years ago you'll see a little fenced-in thing where there was a spring and years ago there would be lines of people up at that spring 
And they would be there with their gallon jugs. I think you're a limited two gallons or something like that, filling up their gallon jugs and going back home with their spring water. Every day you'd go by there. You would see people there. And then one day, I remember, I hadn't been there in a while, and I went by it, and it was all locked up. And you can't go there anymore. Because somehow that, that spring that once was, I guess, fresh, who knows, but now has been determined to be poison. Not good anymore. You see, friends, you can't harbor a constantly bitter heart and be loving. You just can't. And I'm amazed at, at a number of people who say they're followers of Jesus and they think they have the right to despise other followers of Jesus. And, and or they'll, God uses the word hate. That, that you think you can, you can hate another follower of Jesus. Jesus says, the Lord says, if, you, if that's what you do, if you think you can legitimately hate your brother, God says, you're a liar. You're a complete liar. Don't, God says, don't tell me you love me and you hate my son. Don't tell me you love me and you hate my daughter. Or, or just as double-tongued and as two-faced is don't think you can come to church and be one way at church and be another way the rest of the week. Or don't think you can come to church and be one way with some people and not the same way with all people. I'm not saying you have to be everybody's BFFs. So you don't have to be everybody's best friend forever. But you can't be all sweet as pie to some people and nasty as all get out to others. It's not right. Jesus wants consistent love for him and consistent love for his people pouring out of us like living water to bless people. Famous verse, John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be more prone to be friends with some people than other people. I understand that. We all understand that. But we're a family. We are to love one another. Now, how do we do here at this church about that? We do pretty good generally. But we can always do better. Verse 12, James reminds us that a tree will bear what kind of fruit the tree is. A reminder to look at the fruit that our life is producing. I mean, would you say that you're fair? Are you a fair person? Do you... Do you when you, when you know there's disagreements between people, whether it's at church or at work or at home or wherever it is, are you fair? Are you one of those people who's prone to take one person's side before you've actually heard the other person's side? Proverbs would tell you that you're a fool if you do that. 
You're a complete fool. That's a bad tree. That's the kind of tree that produces gossip and hatred, marring the image of God in a person without even bothering to get the facts. But, 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 James simply says, these things should not be so. This should not be found. He's talking to, he's talking to believers. He's writing a letter to a church. He's like, this should not be so among God's people. This is not the way you love God. This is fake love. You say, this is harsh, man. It's not harsh at all. It's not harsh at all. Because the point of verse 12 is the end product is the fruit it produces in your life. And, and, a, and the fruit is always consistent with its source. And what's the source of the fruit? Our hearts. James wants us to hear the word of the Lord loud and clear. If your heart is not right with God, your words will not be pure. Your words will not be helpful to people. Listen to what Alec Mateer said. He said, Defamatory, unloving speech issues from a heart where the love of God is a stranger. That's a powerful quote. Defamatory, unloving speech issues from a heart where the love of Jesus is a stranger. Only a renewed heart can produce the kind of speech that produces the Lord and blesses others. We can't miss the illustration here. And i got to tell you something about James, a great illustrator. Now, we know he's the Lord Jesus' little brother. Same mother, different father. Although James was a son of God, in, in the sense of adopted into the family of God, not the way Jesus was. But I wonder if just, you know, listening to Jesus all those years, listening to his big brother, did, did he catch the illustrations that his brother did? Or is it even possible that Mary or Joseph were great illustrators and they taught the boys? I, I don't even know. But, it, but here's the thing in this illustration here. You can easily take fresh water and make it salty. You can easily take fresh water and make it nasty. But you can't easily make salt water fresh. You can't easily make nasty water fresh. For that, if that's you, if you're, if, if the, if you're the nasty water... You and I, we need the Holy Spirit. And we'll look more at that next week, but for now it's important to remember we get the Holy Spirit because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and putting our trust in Him instead of ourselves. In John chapter 8, religious leaders, as usual, trying to put it at Jesus this is, this is an incredible statement that Jesus makes. John 8, 46. He says to them, Which of you convicts me of sin? 
Let's just stop right there for a second. You know what they heard when Jesus said that? Crickets. Crickets. Not even the religious leaders could say anything to him. That means they couldn't even say to him. And, they, and the Proverbs talk so much about speech and so much about the tongue. We said James heavily influenced by the Proverbs. Not one of them could even say, hey, it's the things that you say. You call us a brood of vipers. And inside they're going, yeah, we kind of are a brood of vipers. They couldn't even, they couldn't even tag on Jesus one sin of the tongue. That's what made him a perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He says, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Why don't you put your trust in me? I'm telling you the truth. I, I don't have this agenda. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying to do anything. Just trying to tell you the truth about how to get the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Do you believe Jesus? Remember we say not do you believe in Jesus. Do you believe him? Do you, do you trust him? Do you trust him to save your soul? Do you want him to save your soul? If yes, put your trust in him tonight. Do you trust him that he can save your tongue? If yes, confess the sins of your tongue. There are many. And put your trust in him tonight. And may the power of God's word guide and direct our words. Let's pray.